0: brought to you by Lifetree at paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of Spiritual Grit, The Jesus-Centered Life, and general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. My voice probably sounds a little unusual for those of you who uh, are used to listening to podcasts. Today, we're recording via the online application Zoom, so I have no idea what my voice sounds like, but it probably doesn't sound normal. But with this episode, we're going to kick off a two-month pursuit and I'm calling the newness of you. One thing that's for sure about January and February is we are kind of forced into the mindset of thinking about who we are and new starts. What is it? What are the kinds of transformations you want in your life? We're in this season where all of our attention is directed at this. So I thought it'd be interesting to target sort of this universal craving that we have to become a better version of ourselves. And normally that. The impetus for that is very much located in our own willpower, our own brainstorming, our own creativity, our own perseverance, our own everything. So, I thought it'd be interesting for us to explore how exactly Jesus brought transformation into people's lives. Just, he did it in such a diversity of ways. We'll have easily two months of episodes of really slowing down and focusing on how Jesus transformed the individuals that he did and the various ways that he did. And we're going to have fun talking about that in these first two months. But I also, in this first episode of the year, have exciting news. Boom. That's like my Becky Harrington, my original partner in crime on this podcast is going to be rejoining me for, we hope a couple of episodes every month this year. So I am absolutely thrilled about that. And those of you who are longtime listeners, I know you're thrilled right now too. So Becky, say hello. Give us a short update on your life.
1: Hi, everybody. It's so great to be back. I can't believe that it's been a full year since I said goodbye to you and had to go on the road. And I know I've come on a few times since then, but I had to take a long pause just because I had a season of making things end, basically wrapping things up in a bow. And I am now moved on. I have moved into a new house, own house with my stuff. I'm settled in, in a new state. I'm making friends and putting my life back into a normal place, which is super, super great. And I am that's part of the reason why I felt like I had the space and the time to come back and be a part of this and it was a good timing and the needs of this podcast. So I am so excited to reconnect with all of you.
0: We'll mention this at the end as well, but Becky's like the Swiss Army knife of people. Now she does like a little bit of everything and but one of the things she does, she's actually consulting with other people around the country about launching and maintaining and improving their podcast. So we'll give you some connection information for, for Becky at the end and also on our podcast page. So if you want to get in touch with her, if you need help, if you're, maybe you own a small business or maybe uh, you've always had this dream of starting your own podcast or you've had a dream for starting a little side hustle and you need some help. Oh, you couldn't do better than Becky. She's amazing. So we'll give you some more contact information for her. But in this first episode of 2019, in this series we're calling The Newness of You, we're going to explore kind of, as, I don't think we've really explored this story ever in our first three seasons, Becky, that, because it's sort of outside of the Gospels. Paul, the Apostle Paul, has a couple of encounters with Jesus that are outside of the four Gospels. And we, we have focused on the first of those when Paul is initially Knocked off his donkey by Jesus and has that whole sort of Tony Soprano encounter with Jesus. He uh, changes his whole life and ends up planting the church of Jesus in the world. But then he has this second encounter that we learn about that's buried in his second letter to the Corinthians, where he has this sort of very intense encounter with Jesus around what Paul calls a thorn in his side. He also calls it a messenger of Satan. So he writes about this to the the followers of Jesus living in Corinth, and what's interesting is that Paul begs him three times to take it away, and three times Jesus says no. So we're going to slow down and pay ridiculous attention to this encounter, because out of this encounter, Paul is different. Paul is transformed. When he asks Jesus to directly take this away, Jesus directly refuses, so the question is why? Why? I think the answer here and what happens in Paul has direct bearing on our own growth and transformation. So we're going to back up for a second and explore sort of the context for this kind of bizarro story that we find in 2 Corinthians. We often lose sight of where these stories happen, what's happening around them, and then we lose the real meaning of the story. And so we're going to back up a little bit and go take a deeper dive into what happens right before. Paul shares this sort of intense encounter with Jesus. So, most of 2 Corinthians is essentially Paul defending himself against some false apostles, that's what he calls them, who have kind of come through Corinth and undermined Paul's character and teaching and mission. And this second letter to the Corinthians. It's kind of full of frustration. You can feel it in between all of the lines of this letter where Paul is frustrated with the Corinthians because they've been so easily swayed and easily convinced about these false accusations that have been leveled against him. And so a lot of this second letter to the Corinthians is full of Paul's defense of himself. And it's quite passionate and sometimes hilarious, <laughs> the, way, the extent that Paul goes to defend himself. And, And so I think it's good for us to first start, sort of get inside Paul's shoes here a little bit, or his sandals, I guess the case may be, to get inside of his head even about what it feels like to be falsely accused, because that's where he's at when he shares this story. And so I'm wondering, maybe you have been falsely accused uh, of something in your life. The other night I was with the young people in our small group, and I asked them, how many of you have ever been falsely accused of something? And about 90% of them raised their hands. And then I said, well, how many of you have ever been falsely seen by somebody? Meaning, maybe it wasn't an accusation, but somebody perceived you differently than you really are, and they expressed that. How many of you have had that experience? And all of them raised their hands. So this is kind of a universal emotional experience that we have where we're falsely accused of something, I thought I'd share a a story from my life when I was falsely accused of something, then Becky's going to share something from her life. My story, the the one that sticks out to me the most in my adult life happened, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, where I had been pursuing, I guess you could say I was pursuing a, a greater leadership role in the church that I was a part of. And I was kind of going down this path into this greater influential leadership role in the church that I was a part of. I was an elder at this church for six years and I was part of the church for a dozen years. And So I'd been kind of almost recruited for this greater leadership role and I was pursuing this path to see where it would go. And it was getting near the end and everything looked fine. And then two of the people who were on the, the group that was sort of shepherding me through this process, asked to meet with me, and I knew both of them pretty well. One of them was a good friend of mine. They asked to meet with me for coffee, and I didn't understand why. But quickly into our conversation, they said, well, there's kind of a snag that has happened in this process, and the snag is that our office manager here at the church has come to us with a problem she has with you. I was like totally flummoxed by this. I did not know the office manager very well and I had no idea what problem she could have had with me. But these two guys explained to me that she had come to them and said she was not comfortable with me moving into this leadership role because she experienced me as disrespectful to women. And my jaw just dropped. I I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I asked them like, if you were in my shoes, the first thing you would do is say, well, what, what is this based on? What experience has she had? And they were very fuzzy about, they didn't have, they didn't give me any specifics. And they kind of said, well, you know, we're not here to talk about the specifics of this. And I said, but, but wow, this is a very serious thing you're telling me. And I am totally blank. I have no idea why she would say this. I don't even have that much contact with her. So i don 't understand where this is coming from, obviously, this was uh, devastating, and one of the things about false accusation is that even if you absolutely one hundred percent know that this accusation is untrue, something happens in you where you think, Well, am I? do people experience me? Maybe I don't know myself very well maybe maybe I am haphazardly abusive, and I don't even know it. You know you start to have these doubts in your mind and So, you know, of course, I went home and told my wife and she was shocked by this. The long story short of this story is that we went through many iterations of trying to understand what this whole thing was about. And when it came down to it, what came out was this office manager had seen me because I was an elder. I would sometimes walk through the office to grab something or I also taught adult classes at the church. so Sometimes I had to go in and use the copier. And I was usually in a hurry. And I was usually distracted because I had something I was about to do. And throw on top of that, I'm basically a shy person. I don't walk into offices real gregarious and stuff. And so, basically, what came out of this is she perceived my distracted shyness as disrespectful and dismissive to the women in the office. And obviously, I had no idea. So, she translated my shyness into an emotion she projected onto me, and then started gathering evidence to support this impression that she had of me. So to her, this was a done deal. She understood why I acted the way I did. So when I had a chance to talk more about this with her and with others, this is the story that came out. This is the only reason that she felt this. And I thought, wow, what a serious accusation to level against somebody without ever even talking to them or knowing them that well. And so in the end, what happened is that the pastor of that church asked her to publicly apologize to me because of this accusation, which she did. But the truth about it is that even now, the pain of that accusation lingers. And whenever I, I don't really see this woman very often anymore, but for several years, I saw her all the time. And it was really painful every time I saw her. It was impossible for me to think about my relationship with her outside of this thing that happened. And one thing that I did along with my wife to try to get on top of this a little bit is this woman was a single mom and she ended up getting married and all of the elders and the church staff were invited to her reception. And my wife and I decided to go to her reception. And when we showed up, she knew that this was a big deal that I was showing up. It meant something to her that I showed up, but obviously it was still an awkward. I remember that reception feeling awkward because of all that had happened. So even small accusations, not even epic ones like this, can really get under our skin. I had The other day I had a friend of mine here that I work with. But we we just moved to a new office location inside our building. And so there's a lot of boxes and bookcases and stuff like that around. And I have some boxes of books in a bookcase that had not yet been moved. And he sent me an email telling me that a person in HR wanted to know what I was doing with those boxes of books in the bookshelf. And he told me that, if I didn't take care of it, the HR person was going to start fining me $50 a day, as long as the boxes in the bookshelf remained in that location. And he said it, you know, totally like he wrote it, like it was straight. And I had this moment where I thought, oh my gosh, is that real? And then I had to slow down and think about it for a minute. And I thought, no, this can't possibly, he's putting me on here. It's a prank. But for about 15 seconds, I thought, oh no, they're going to they're gonna charge me $50 a day but i went through these this micro cycle of emotions that were you know a micro version of the epic thing that happened to me before it's funny how a false accusation or a hard response about who you are can immediately engage your emotions at a deep level and i know becky for you you've had <laughs> Plenty of this happened in your life, especially in the last year or two. Would you mind sharing one of your stories of false accusation and how that impacted you?
1: Well, when Rick talked to me yesterday about what his angle was going to be on transformation for this week, I knew that it had to be from the Holy Spirit because I had just been just very recently dealing with some fear that was based on the fear of some false accusations that I've already had against me that were making me hesitant about moving forward with sharing my story in more public places. And I'll talk a little bit at the end about how I'm going to be doing that this year. But one of the the things that, that happened during the process, and, and many of you who have and listening to the podcast, you know, a little bit about my story, you know, that last year I had to leave. And that was because there was some domestic violence issue that came up in my home. And I had to do what was best for me to be safe um, and make some choices to do that. And over the course of the last year, that has come to a close and been resolved and charges were made. But along the way, I had some family members who were in communication with my ex-husband who were having that communication behind my back and not telling me about it and that were also talking with me in vulnerability and sharing information back to him and during the course of that i was accused of basically making up all of this i was accused of using the situation to get revenge against my husband and there were some very close family members who even let those accusations take a little bit of root they let that little seed be planted in them and i had to walk through my own version of being Paul and having to defend myself. And so as a result of that, I became more cautious and fearful because if that could happen with family members who know me and who have known me for a long time, who had more of a front row seat than many people in this situation, then it would be very easy for people who don't know me. um, As I start to come out with my story and talk in more public arenas about it, who could go on the internet and say all kinds of things about me as well and and it made me really fearful to move forward been asked by this woman Tiffany Smiley she has a project called the more than mean movement and the the whole premise of it is the power of togetherness that when we share stories we make people feel less alone and that our stories that we sometimes wish to hide are better told because then someone else can say, oh my gosh, I'm not the only person going through this. And so I'm very excited to be asked by her to be involved and to give a place for my story to be told so that other women can experience healing so that they can feel like someone else has walked before them, that someone cares about their situation and that they don't have to hide anymore. But it's also very very scary for me because when you put yourself out in the public like that, then you get opened up for attack. So, of course, I was just talking to my good friend about this and saying that I was scared to move forward and I was being cautious about it. And so we were talking specifically about how fear is not from the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk some more about that today and that we very much sometimes, you know, Rick could have also in his situation, that kind of accusation can make you say, you know what, maybe I don't really want to pursue this ministry position because yeah. this is too much, right? Yep. Um, and, or maybe I'm not ready for this. Maybe I'm not prepared. It, it, it puts doubt in our heart and it prevents us from moving forward and doing the things that Jesus is asking us to do in our life. And fear is not from the Holy Spirit. Fear is... From a whole other place and so it's really important and today I just decided you know what I'm just gonna go ahead (laughs) and say the thing that I'm afraid of being accused of because then it's out there in the light for everyone to hear and it can't take root in my life anymore.
0: Yeah and this kind of fear comes from trauma and make no mistake to be falsely accused is a trauma. It's I would say in a human sense it's 100% impossible to not respond at all to a false accusation. It puts in a uh, maybe a more personal light what Jesus did as he was heading to the cross. He knew that the cross was where he had to go. So when he's before Pilate, and Pilate's accusing him and telling him, hey, here's, the, here's your chance to make your defense. I have motivating factors here that I'd love to let you out of this. I don't want you to be crucified Defend yourself, and Jesus is just silent. That's such an extraordinary thing to do with such a thing on the line. It's another evidence for us of how much Jesus wasn't victimized. Jesus chose the cross. He made it possible for him to be crucified because he did everything he could to make sure it was going to happen. But in normally human terms, we can't help but defend ourselves when we're falsely accused. The other night when I was with the teenagers in our small group uh, to start off the night and talking about this, I decided to falsely accuse my young daughter, my 15 year old daughter, Emma. I I accused her of stealing a brownie that she knew I had set aside for myself. Just this nothing accusation. Well, this of course came out of left field for her and it created tension in the whole group. This, This whole interchange lasted two minutes or less. But it created tremendous tension in the whole group that I had brought this up at the start. I set aside this brownie, and I know you took it. I just don't know why you took it. And she's like, what are you talking about, Dad? And, and so when I stopped it and said, listen, this was just a false accusation I was throwing at Emma. I then turned to Emma, and I said, Emma, what was going on inside of you as soon as this started happening, as soon as you heard me falsely accusing you? And she said, well, I was really mad. I wanted to come over there and punch you. And then the whole group talked about what are the things that go on inside of us when we're falsely accused? What are some of the reactions we have besides anger? What else is going on? And Becky, let's, let's talk about that for a second. What are some things that, that went on inside of you as you experienced these false accusations, knowing they were false? And you had the added weight that these were coming from people who purport to know you well, or at least should know you well. What are some other things that were happening inside of you besides just anger?
1: I was devastated. I had already had just the worst year of my life. And there were two things. One was, is this what people are just saying behind my back? is this what people really think but they don't say to my face was one and just you know that lack of trust all of a sudden that I had behind were people really here to support me the people that I was counting on were they really going to be here to support me because I really needed them to be here to support me and the second was how how is it that you could ever really believe this idea don't you know who i am by now i've been living my whole life alongside you how could you ever think that that would be something that i would do and that goes to the core of your identity right there don't you see who i really am and then you know well maybe like rick said maybe i maybe I am doing that and I'm not aware. Maybe I am. um, Maybe that is the motive behind why I'm pursuing this. And, you know, the timing of this was just so horrendous because when all of this came out and I had to have these talks, I was literally two days from going to a trial where i was going to have to testify against my husband and that was already something that was terrifying for me i was going through extreme trauma at the time i had more than anxiety i was having regular panic attacks that were lasting for days that were debilitating and and then in the midst of this at a time when i was barely able to support myself emotionally i suddenly had to defend myself to the people who I thought were on my side who were supposed to be the ones to protect me. And so it was a very, very hard week of my life.
0: You know, what's interesting is even as I'm listening to you talk about these things that are going on inside of you, I asked my daughter, Emma afterward, Hey, Emma, you knew that this was a ridiculous accusation. And so did I, but given that, did you actually wonder whether you, really had stolen a brownie from me. And she looked at me into the whole group and said, yes, I did. (laughs) It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy.
1: Uh She knows
0: without a shadow of a doubt, she never did anything like this. But one of the kids said something profound. They said, you know, if it's somebody you trust, and they said, we trust each other in this Mm -hmm. group. So when a trusted person says this, you can believe the ridiculous. You can start to believe the ridiculous because of this. One of the other teenagers said something really profound, also about the lingering impact of a false accusation. He said, It's like you have a blank white sheet of paper and somebody writes in pencil something on it that's not true about you, but then you erase it because it's not true and it's gone. Well, you don't have a blank white sheet of paper anymore. You can still see the remnants of that accusation no matter what you do to try to erase it. I thought that was a profound way to describe the lingering impact of this. And what's important for for us to understand is that this is where Paul was at. He had had people that he had poured himself into and been vulnerable with and had spent so much time trying to impact planting the church in Corinth. And along come some people that Uh, have no real relational connection to the followers of Jesus in Corinth. And they throw out a few things about Paul that aren't true, but undermine his character and his teaching. And they start to believe these things. And then Paul has to respond to it while he's in chains in prison. He cannot go face them in person. He has to write a letter to them about this. The whole thing is just, it would be intolerable. In fact, at one point in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this to the followers of Jesus in Corinth. He says, you happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one I preached. He's basically saying, how could you guys so easily think this about me and about my teaching? It's the very same thing you just said, Becky, that how could somebody close to me say something like this? It's, it's almost unbelievable. And this is the place that Paul is at. And because of this, and because it's basically what I've said before, pretty much humanly impossible not to defend yourself in this situation, Paul does defend himself. So I'd like us to, I'm going to just read through Paul's, uh, what he calls his foolish defense of himself. He stops over and over again to say, I know I'm being an idiot here. I know I'm going over the top. I know I shouldn't boast. I know I'm being foolish, but I have to tell you this. Think about all that we've just talked about in light of this is where Paul is at emotionally. And uh, Becky, let's, after I finish this little segment, let's loop back and, and, and think through a little bit about where Paul's at and why he would say the things he's about to say. So this is in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 16. If you're not driving and you want to flip open your Bible and follow along, please do. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, which is the translation in our Jesus-centered Bible. So if you have a Jesus-centered Bible, you're set to go here. So starting in verse 16, he says, Again, I say, don't think that I'm a fool to talk like this. But even if you do, listen to me as you would to a foolish person, while I also boast a little. Such boasting is not from the Lord, but I am acting like a fool. And since others boast about their human achievements, I will too. After all, you think you're so wise, but you enjoy putting up with fools. You put up with it when someone enslaves you, takes everything you have or takes advantage of you, takes control of everything and slaps you in the face. Well, I'm ashamed to say that we've been too weak to do that. But whatever they dare boast about, I'm talking like a fool again, I dare to boast about it too. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? Well, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I've worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes, which, by the way, is supposed to be a death sentence. It's one lash short of a death, death sentence. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I face danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I face danger in the cities and in the deserts and on the seas. And I face danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me feeling that weakness? who is led astray, and I don't burn with anger. If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who is worthy of eternal praise, knows I'm not lying. When I was in Damascus, the governor under King Aretas kept guards at the city gates to catch me. I had to be lowered in a basket through a window in the city wall to escape from him. So we're just gonna pause right there. It's an extraordinary little rant. That Paul is in the middle of and this same theme kind of like I said before dominates a lot of the letter So the question here is Becky, what do you think is Paul's purpose? What is happening in him? Why would he go into this rant in light of the false accusations about him? What humanly speaking? What is he doing here?
1: He's saving his relationships I mean, these, are, these aren't these are just some people out there, right? These are relationships that he has. These are people who he loves and who love him and who have been supporting one another. They're a part of his community. He's facing losing them. And he's in a place where he needs to not lose his people. And he also knows... That if they go down this road, that they're going to be led astray. It's just as much for them as it is for him. But how ridiculous is it that he has to go to this length? I mean, to have to, all of a sudden now you're in a place where you're having to boast about yourself, where you're having to, not, it, this isn't just about defense. He's having to remind them that he's important yeah. <laughs> and that he's done important things. Like What a ridiculous place to have to be in. And you feel foolish yourself," he says it over and over again. I feel so foolish that I have to say this. Well, you, you don't. You know, when when we follow Jesus, we follow an idea of humility. We follow an idea of putting ourselves last. We follow an idea of being less than. And now, all of a sudden, because of this situation, he has to go against the grain of that, so that he can keep these relationships and so that they don't. Um, fall off the path themselves. he He's doing it because he cares about these people.
0: Yeah, I love that you've pointed out that it's not just about defending himself. He recognizes that if he does not successfully defend himself, then the work that he's done with this group of people may go off the rails, might be completely wasted and go down the drain. And he can't tolerate that either. The idea that somehow all of the good work that has been done to help build the foundation of the church there all of the good ways that these people have been learning to love and depend upon jesus could go down the drain because they think ill of him he can't tolerate it and that's one of the things about false accusations by the way it reveals how much we are it's almost like breathing to us that we expect to be in control of our identity and the perceptions of our identity when we are not in control of those perceptions when we cannot refute something that is clearly false about ourselves, it's almost intolerable. In fact, in extreme cases, it could drive you insane. If you cannot maintain your sense of truth in your identity, and it's out of your control now, it's one of the hardest things a human being can endure. And it's very difficult to endure for any length of time. So here, Paul is trying to set the record straight and he's allowing himself, as you said, Becky, to go over the top in this. He's like pulling out all the big guns, and and he saves the biggest gun for the end. Now he's made a case for his ministry, his heritage, his background, all of these things, but then he hauls out an exclamation point here, and it starts in, ver- in chapter 12. I'll just read the first seven verses of chapter 12, where, where Paul pulls out this enormous thing. This is like his final you know flag in the ground that yes you guys should not believe these lies about me so here's what he says this boasting will do no good but i have to go on anyway (laughs) i will reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the lord i was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago whether i was in my body or out of my body i don't know only god knows yes only god knows whether i was in my body or outside my body but i do know that I was caught up to paradise, and I heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. That experience is worth boasting about, but I'm not going to do it. I will boast only about my weakness, but if I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I'd be telling the truth, but I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God. We'll stop there for a second. So Becky, why do you think Paul would haul out this story of this crazy vision he has? He says that he's not sure whether it was a dream or if it was real, but he vividly remembers what he heard in this astonishing dream. And he knows that he's not supposed to share what he heard with anyone else. This was like this extraordinary experience. He knows it was extraordinary, and then he sort of backs off and says, but I'm not supposed to tell. But so why would he bring it up in the first place, do you think?
1: Well, I kind of wonder like, if later on he gets in trouble with God for this. Like- <laughs> He was not supposed to tell. And then he told, like, I don't, I think God would be like, so when I told you that you weren't supposed to tell, I didn't say, unless you're falsely accused by your community, then you can tell the big secret. I told you not to tell. But I mean, I think he's trying to, he's making a case. If this was a judge and a jury situation and-
0: Which it and, is, by the way, that right. that is exactly how it feels. This is, it's a judge this is, judge. That,
1: this is the evidence, you know? And, and I feel like as I, you were reading that, I was thinking through the same situation where I'm sitting there with a loved family member and having to say, how could you say this about me? I lost everything. I'm living in a van. I don't know where my next paycheck is going to come from. I left a community of people that I loved. I missed my home. I had a great life. Why would I do all of that and leave just to falsely accuse my husband of something? Why would I do that? I mean, I could hear myself in these words. You're defending yourself. And he's... He's, this is the best case he can make for himself so that he can keep this relationship that he cares about.
0: Just this week, there was the, in the news, a New York City meteorologist was in the news because on air, he was saying something about the Martin Luther King holiday, and he slurred a word when he said Martin Luther King, and in the middle of saying Martin Luther King holiday, he said Martin, Lu- Martin Luther Coon holiday. So he slurred a word, but obviously that's on the face of it, a racist word to right. use the context of any African-American, and he was immediately fired yeah. from his job. And what was interesting that came out today, I just noticed this, was Al Roker, the highest profile African-American meteorologist in the world, has come out in defense of this guy wow. and has said, look, all of us have screwed up and slurred a word. I don't believe this guy meant to say that word. I believe he just screwed up the word.
1: I well, bet they're friends. I bet that he knows who he is and he knows. He didn't know who he
0: was. Oh. He, he was defending him out of the blue. Wow. He was that's just incredible. saying, well, he was just saying, I've screwed up many times on air and I've watched what the guy did and it's obvious he's just messing up his word. But so many, because we live in such a charged environment, there are many people that don't believe that, that believe he He says that word all the time and it just came out because he's so used to saying it. And then I saw the meteorologist respond to Al Roker's tweet in defending him and basically saying, thank you. Why would I risk my entire career and my family to say a word like that about the most important civil rights leader in our history? Why would I do that? But you can see him desperately trying to defend his identity. And here you have Paul desperately trying to defend his identity so much so that he starts to tell the story of something he's not supposed to tell and then he to his credit he backs off doesn't really tell any of the details of it but he's so desperate that he starts to he's desperate as we've just said because he's in such a vulnerable place the theme of these two months is going to be on the newness of you and how jesus transforms us what jesus does next is enter into Paul's story, into his story of false accusation, and transform him by what he does. So let's read what happens next. So Paul has just said, I've seen this vision, but I'm not going to share it with you. But it's important for you to know that I saw it. (laughs) And then Paul says, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time, that means three times in a row, Jesus said these words, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Let me say it three times so you get the feeling of what Paul felt. My grace is all you need, Paul. My power works best in weakness. No, Paul, I'm not taking it away. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So Paul goes on to say, so now, so now means something changed in me. Something is changed in me. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong." So let's, Becky, let's slow down. And I have four questions here I want us to pursue with this part of the encounter. The first one is, let's assume that this thorn is the most loving gift Jesus could give Paul in this moment, in the place that Paul is in when he's being falsely accused. This thorn is the most loving thing Jesus could give Paul. And Paul calls it a messenger of Satan. (laughs) It's, I don't know if it's actually a messenger of Satan or if that's hyperbole to describe How much he hates whatever this thing is. Let's assume that this thing, this thorn, is the most loving gift Jesus could give Paul. Why is this a gift of love, do you think, Becky, when you think about where Paul is at?
1: Well, I mean, he got to have an experience that would make a man feel like they're the most superior uh, spiritual human on earth. And you know, Paul kind of already has struggled with this. I mean, he was. You know, we've talked about Paul. He was a persecutor of Christians. He killed, murdered Christians. He hunted them down and killed them. And the reason why he was in that position is because he was like the most elite Jew. He was like the most. Educated, smart—you know—if he was in that culture, he would have been like the most celebrated of all of these educated teachers of the law. And, and he'd
0: be—he'd be at. Let's compare this too. He'd be at like the top the of his class at Harvard. He would yep. have graduated number one in his class in Harvard. He Everyone had,
1: knows who he is.
0: He had Gamaliel as his rabbi who was the most respected rabbi of the ancient world and only had about three dozen students in his entire life. Paul was one of them. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees by his own admission. Yeah,
1: He was a celebrity. And and so he already came into the equation, I mean, getting knocked off his donkey, blinded, because Paul has always been a little prideful. Let's be honest. That's what he's known for. And then in addition to that, Jesus... Encounters him, changes his life, and then gives him this most superior experience. And so, you know, on earth, he needs to stay on his level where Jesus needs him. (laughs) And that's how he helps him stay dependent on him because Paul would easily go right back into being dependent on himself. He was already in a system where he was following rules, and that's how he earned his way to heaven. And he kept earning accolades and doing all this stuff. And Jesus needed him to say, no, I need you. And so that's why, that's why he got a thorn. Let's, let's,
0: let's camp on the word you used just there for a minute, the, the word dependence, which we've often talked about on the podcast. Let's think about this in a different way. We know that Jesus compared his relationship with us to a vine that has a dead and dying branch grafted into it so that the branch gets the life of the vine and actually gets the DNA of the vine. This is the reality, metaphorically, of what Jesus has invited us into. He has grafted us into himself, into, his very, into the Trinity, into the very family of God. We are now sons and daughters with the DNA of our good father in us. So Jesus says that in order for the branch to have life, it must stay attached to the vine. That means that the branch, here's where the metaphor breaks down, the branch has volition. The branch can be attached to anything at once. Jesus is saying, but stay attached to the vine because you'll have life. If we stay attached to our own sources of strength and justification, it is like planting our branch in a toxic pond of poison. It's sucking the toxic chemicals from that pond right up into our branch. And what Jesus is saying here relative to the thing that you said about dependence becky is that it's life and death for you paul that you stay attached to me and not to your own strength and justification self justification you will die if you're not dependent on me and attached to me and so the most loving thing you can do for someone who is unaware of what their self-justified attachment is doing to them is to prod them until they're desperate for you (laughs) it's the most humble thing jesus could do to drive us to dependence on him because he knows he's the only source of life and one of the things that came out in my conversation with young people the other night was we stopped in the middle of this particular conversation and i said you know jesus only enters into our life by invitation he never bulls his way past our closed door he never forces us into relating to him, he only responds to invitation. So if you think about dependence as a form of profound and vulnerable invitation, then it makes sense why Jesus so much wants us in a place of dependence. Because when we're in a place of dependence, we invite him in and he will not bull his way in. So he's made this relationship contingent on our invitation. So dependence is our, is our way of inviting him in, and he knows it's good for us to invite him in. So the, the second question is, well, what does Jesus mean when the first thing he says is, my grace is all you need? What do you think that means, even in your own context, Becky, when you think about what you are not in the past facing, but facing right now, what does it mean to you when Jesus says, my grace is all you need? Because that can sound frustrating when you're in a place where you want to be justified again and have your identity defended. What does it mean to you that my grace is all you need?
1: At the end of all of it, what it really means is that there may have be a time where I have to defend myself. Paul had to. There There may be times when we have to To say, you know what, enough is enough. I've got to face this head on. We've seen other people have to do that. Um, Especially, I mean, just bringing up some of these accusations. We're we're in a very heated culture right now, and people are getting uh, they're getting in the limelight and then torn from the limelight, and they have to stand and be accused and defend themselves. But at the end of it, what we have to say is, I will do my best. But whether or not people choose to see who I really am and believe what I have to say, that is going to be up to Jesus because I have no control over this anymore. I can do my effort. And that's what Paul did. He pierced through the fear of what was going on. He put out what he had to say. He made his best effort. He made his best case to those people. And then he had to say, you know what, Jesus, the rest is up to you whether or not they believe this or not. And I love how
0: you described Paul before, you know, the Pharisee of Pharisees and all this. So here's a guy who spent most of second Corinthians defending himself and listing his accomplishments and all that he's done. And then he hauls out his vision, his exclamation point. And he's just like us in this way. And he's doing what he can do to rescue his reputation. But then he reaches this point where he realizes, I'm not ultimately in control of rescuing my reputation, I'm going to have to step off the cliff now and trust Jesus to defend me. It's one of the most vulnerable trusting things we can do. And this act that Paul does here, that he describes here, is is a um, immediate pathway into intimacy. When you trust Jesus to defend you, your intimacy with him grows very deep because now you're trusting him with your very life. Our identity is the avatar for our life. It's what represents our life. So Paul here is saying, I reached this point where I realized I could not with certainty defend my reputation just on my legal case alone. Even though I'm a good lawyer, I've presented a good case. In the end, I was driven to trusting Jesus to protect my reputation. And then the second thing Jesus says here is, My power works best in weakness. What do you think that means? Even in your own story, Becky, my power works best in weakness. It's a very exacting statement.
1: I think that when we start to feel self-sufficient and when we start to feel like what we have in our shallow reservoir is more than enough to accomplish what we need, then we don't really, we very easily just go back to not needing Jesus anymore. And what I know from my own personal experience is that the longer that I have been with Jesus, the more he wants to show me how much I need him and how shallow my reservoir is. While the last year was really hard, there were times during it where I just was given so much strength from the Lord to do things that I thought were impossible. But also during this time, I have been shown the limitations of how far I can really go. And I saw the edge of the cliff. I went over the edge of the cliff and, <laughs> and I experienced like what is too much for me. And, and now I am living with daily anxiety still. Sometimes it's quiet. Sometimes it's loud. um, And I'm learning a new normal with what that looks like, a physical manifestation that is recovering from trauma. And I have no idea how long that will be around. And I, like Paul, that's the thorn in my side. Sometimes it's debilitating. And I've prayed for God to take it away. And what I really have gotten back from him is it's going to be around for a while. And I think that Part of that is that when I get it, I have to, one, I have to say, I'm having anxiety and that's okay. It's normal. And then I have to say, Jesus, please give me grace. Please give me mercy because I'm having anxiety. I can't do anything about it. And I still need to get these things done today. And so I need your grace and mercy to do that because I can't. So,
0: you know, in this last question feeds right out of what you're talking about, What outcome is Jesus hoping for in Paul's life? And by extension, what outcome is he hoping for in our life when we have to deal with our own thorns? I think about, this is going to sound a little funny, but the mother of all sins, the root of all sin, is something that the serpent whispered to Adam and Eve. It's insidious. It is the central core of every sin after this. He whispered to Adam and Eve, you can be like God. You can, he's holding out on you. The reason he doesn't want you to eat that fruit is that he knows if you do, you'll become like him. So this lie is the center of all sin. You can become like God. And when we are self-sufficient, whether we would put it in these epic terms or not, this is what we are doing when we're self-sufficient. We are saying to ourselves, we are like God. In fact, we might be smarter than God, We probably know more about what's better for us than God knows. When we are self sufficient, we are our own gods. And God knew from the beginning of time that this is actually the source of our death. The idea that we could become like God separates us from the only source of life we actually have. So that belief kills us in the end. And He is a good father, and He's not willing to stand by and watch us. Self destruct because of a lie that we have believed. So, if dependence uh, works against and fights against and wars against self sufficiency, our weakness exposes to us once again that we really do need Jesus. And when we are in the place where we recognize we really do need Jesus, we are two things at once. We are wishing we didn't need him so much, (laughs) we're wishing our circumstances were different that we didn't really need him as much as we do. But if you talk to anyone who's gone through an experience like that, they don't want the experience, but they do love the relationship that they had with Jesus, that they were almost forced into during that season of their life, because they experience an intimacy and a knowing of the heart of Jesus that they don't in their normal everyday life. And this, in the end, is our end game. This is going to be our normal life in the kingdom of God. Experiencing intimacy with Jesus, not imagining ourselves ever detached from Him. Any other thoughts here, Becky, about what outcome Jesus might be hoping for in Paul, and maybe in you, through the thorn?
1: I think He's just He's continuing to mold me into the person that He wants to use to do things, and that I still have a long ways to go. And if you're in a place where you're dealing with pain or tragedy or trauma or anxiety, you know, just know that you're not alone and that God can use that and you can accept this is here, but I'm going to walk ahead anyways. And we're going to share some practical ideas on how you can do that.
0: And you can be able to say, even in these places, as ridiculous as it sounds from the deepest place in your heart, Jesus, I recognize that your grace is all I need. Right now, that is an extraordinary statement, and it wars against the forces of darkness. When we can say, in the midst of our darkness, "I accept your grace as everything I need right now," that works against all the lies and and strategies of the enemy in our life. Paul ends his encounter here just to remind ourselves again. He ends his his account of all this by saying, "So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses." so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He's really saying, I experience the power of Jesus in me when I accept my weakness and allow him to move through me. So to wrap up here, Becky, let's talk about a few things about what this actually might mean for us to gain the strength of Jesus in the midst of our weakness. So just maybe to explore a few everyday ways that this can actually happen in our lives. So one way is, I loved what you said about this, that for you, the first thing is you must acknowledge what you're afraid of. Why don't you talk about that for a second?
1: I think that there's a sometimes, you know, you can be afraid of small things. For me, it was, okay, I'm afraid to even go to this first more than me movement event because that's the first step towards what I'm being called to do here. But I had to get to the root of what am I actually afraid of? And what I'm actually afraid of, I had to say it out loud. And I said it out loud for the first time this week to my good friend. And now I just said it out loud to all of you. And part of just acknowledging what you're afraid of and then also getting it out there in the light is that it doesn't take root because we need to remember that our god is not a god of fear and so fear doesn't come from him he's a god of power and he's a god of might he's asking us to give our fear to him and sometimes we t- we talk about this all the time sometimes the first thing you need to do is just tell someone what you're afraid of out loud and to be really vulnerable and honest and you don't need to go out and tell 10,000 people you might just need to tell one person because then that fear can't Take root in you anymore.
0: When Jesus said in a very explicit way, everything that's hidden in the darkness will be dragged into the light, he wasn't threatening us. He was saying, This is how the kingdom of God works. Mm -hmm. Nothing that is hidden in darkness will stay there. Everything gets hauled into the light because in the light is where health and healing can happen. Only in the darkness can things fester and grow that are poisonous to us. So the first step is to get it into the light as you just said as scary as that may feel like to give words to it and do it out loud to someone else or if, if you have to start by saying it out loud yourself do that what am I afraid of and get past your surface answer to get to the core what are you really afraid of then name it then the, the thing that struck me is that we move from a defensive posture to a trusting posture this is exactly what happened with Paul. He's defending, defending, defending. And then his thorn causes him to stop defending himself and move toward a trusting posture. And this is an act of choice. What I would say is it's human to defend yourself. In fact, if you're defending yourself right now against 12's accusations, of course you are. <laughs> but there, there will come a point in time where you feel the nudge of the spirit to stop defending yourself and transition into trusting him with your reputation and identity. When that nudge happens, take the act of courage that it is to stop, pause your defense and trust him with your reputation. It's an act of volition. It's not going to just happen. You'll have to choose this moment in response to the nudge of the spirit. Were you going to say something about that, Becky?
1: No, I was going to actually just say that, you know, the reason why, We are talking about transformation while we're talking about this topic right now is because it's January and January is a time where we get back on track and we say, oh, I'm going to fix all the things (laughs) that are wrong with myself, whether that's because we ate too many holiday cookies or if it's because we really wanted to read more books last year, whatever it is that we think is not in our control or that is weak about ourselves, we get into a position where we say, I'm in control of my transformation and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it happen this year. And so it's really easy for us to forget that transformation is not our job, but we do play a role in it. We play the role of acknowledging it, and then giving it back. And I think this is a really good time to just mention that it's not too late. I actually there's there's not very many, but there are a few Jesus centered planners that are still available on Amazon. We're group is sold out, but there are a few that are available still on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon Jesus Centered Planner, the reason why we made that planner is because we wanted to unplan your life and we wanted to give you space where you could feel in control where you're acknowledging the things that you want to fix because it's a natural and normal part of the way that we're built, but it also leads you through a process of then giving it back to Jesus. And so if you're in a place where it's January, it's the second week, and you're listening to this podcast and you've already uh, run out of your own reservoir of what you can control and handle, Maybe hop on over to Amazon and get one of the last Jesus centered planners because that I just got mine. I used it last year. I'm using it again this year. I don't even work for Group anymore. They don't even pay me to use this Jesus centered planner. I love it so much. So um, I, I really think that that is a great way to. Get back on track and do all the things that you're recognizing that are weaknesses in your life that are limiting you or holding you back, but also to give it back to Jesus in a way that he can be in control of the transformation. Yeah, I think that's,
0: that's such an important thing to say in the midst of the conversation about self-sufficiency, that we're not ultimately in charge of our transformation. He's the one that can do it. He's the one that needs us to trust him to do it. I just opened up my email the other day and there was an email from Groupon there. It said, time for self-renewal. Mm-hmm. So I just opened it up and you get a cavalcade of online management courses and holistic ar- aromatherapy and a free 60-day fitness class and allergy tests and all these things that are designed to help us get in control of our transformation. And it's not like the, all of these things are terrible, yep. but in a subtle way, they distract us from the real source of our transformation. And that's in the end, I think, what the story of Paul's thorn is about. Who is going to transform me in the end? Well, Jesus is in charge of it because I begged him to do it my way three times. And he said, I'm not doing it your way, Paul. I'm gonna do it the only way that it will work. My grace has to be enough for you. My power, it really comes to full fruition in your weakness. So it's better for you that I don't take this thorn away as much as it bothers you. So gang, we invite you into this journey. It's not an easy journey, but you have grace to walk this path. As daunting as it sounds, Jesus is never simply saying, okay, climb the mountain, even though it's Mount Everest, with very little equipment. I expect you to get up there. He's never saying that. He's always saying, take a step, take two steps, take three steps in this direction, and I will be with you. I'm never asking you to do anything alone. I'm only ever asking you to do things with me. And as you walk, I will fill you up. To close off, not long ago, I was facing a daunting thing. And in fact, I, it was so daunting, I said, I'm not going to enter into it, Jesus. I can't imagine doing this hard thing. And I was in the shower this one morning, thinking about that I had said, I'm not going to enter into this because it's just going to be too hard. And uh, so I wasn't going to step into it. And Jesus, in his playful way, said to me in the middle of the shower, he said, Rick, remember uh, when I parted the Red Sea in front of Moses? And I'm like, yep. And he said, did Moses have to step into the sea before it was parted? Or did I part it before he stepped in? And I started to smile. And I knew what he was getting at. Moses, God asked Moses to step into the sea, and then he parted it. And Jesus basically said to me, are you better than Moses, Rick? (laughs) Why don't you step into the sea before I part the sea in front of you? And so I did. I made a determination that day in the shower. I'm going to step into the ocean, and I did. And the sea hasn't parted yet, by the way. But what he asked me to do is take those first steps to trust him that he will go before me. And I believe he will. And I'm believing, and Becky and I are both believing for you, whatever it is you have to step into, we're with you. We're fellow travelers on that journey with you. So, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail on paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. Just need to find our podcast section and season four, episode one. You'll see links to things that Becky and I've talked about here today and a link to be able to contact Becky. So if you have a project or you're an entrepreneur, you're part of a business that could use her, her expertise, she's got her own, she's got her own gig now. So we'll get you connected up with Becky. If you'd like to uh, explore the possibilities with her, that will be where you find that as well. And don't forget you can start in this brand new year, a new Bible reading, Jesus centered habit by getting a Jesus-centered Bible. I just met a college student the other night who had bought one and went out of his way to stop me and tell me how much the Bible had transformed his reading of the Bible. That he went from a person who did not really like to read the Bible and it took discipline to somebody who couldn't wait to read the Bible. It was music to my ears. So if you don't have a Jesus-centered Bible and you want to establish a new habit of reading the Bible this year, why not take it easy on yourself And not work so hard. Get a Bible that propels you and makes you want to read every day. It's the Jesus-centered Bible. So this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts for all the latest podcasts and make sure you don't miss one. And gang, we'll talk again next time. Becky will be back, I don't know, in a week or two. We'll see you then.